man. <clears throat> I love being here with you guys. Thank you for welcoming me, not just to chapel, but to the Scots community. I hit the jackpot in terms of marriage. That much is definitely true. Um, I'm like way out of my league here. Um, fun fact, Stephanie and Gustavo Fermenti actually did our uh, premarital counseling. Uh, so those were really sweet times, but I've been, I've been just blown away by getting to live on this campus. You guys have it so good. Uh, and I hear what Stephanie's saying. I mean, the number of people I've talked to who are like, I'm tired. That's real, but just also savor it. Savor the exhaustion, uh, particularly those of us who live in Andreas Hall, as we had our fifth fire drill in the last month, <laughs> last night. It's worth the walk and it's worth the fire drill, so help me. Um, secretly, we just want to hang out in Mac's coddle room. Those couches are comfy. It's a great little environment. So we have to find a way to get in there, and that's what we decided to do, just fire drills. Uh, today we're going to talk about doubt. Um, like Stephanie said, my job in the past was to go on college campuses and address the toughest intellectual objections that college students have about our faith. Uh, in the course of doing that, I had hundreds of conversations with skeptics, with Christians, all, all kinds of people. And so doubt became something that I um, grew used to tackling. But it, it also figures somewhat into my story, and I'd love to share that as we get in. I want to start, though, by reading Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, which says this. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So I want to talk about doubt, but first let me say what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to talk about specific doubts that you may or may not have. If you're sitting here and you have some really specific questions that you're chewing on, okay, like how is the Bible reliable? Wasn't it compiled like a bajillion years ago by people we don't even know who they are? Or if you are asking, why would a loving God allow there to be suffering? Those kinds of specific questions, uh, this talk is not going to cover any of that, okay? But I bring it up because it's important for you to know that you should press into those specific questions, and I want to encourage you that there are actually resources out there beyond probably what you think they are. One of my good friends, uh, Mark Middleberg, who works with Lee Strobel, uh, the apologist who wrote The Case for Christ, he, he said one time, he said, we're living in the golden age of Christian apologetics. There are more resources out there for you guys to tackle intellectual objections to your faith, maybe than at, at any other time in human history. But the truth is, we're not reading any of them. So few of us, wrestling with doubt, take the time to even read one book on apologetics. Why is that? We are growing up in a culture that is saturated with skepticism. You and I live in a culture that sees skepticism actually as intelligence, certainty as foolishness, and feelings as the only reliable guide to truth. 
Skepticism is seen as intelligence. Certainty is seen as just pure foolishness. How could you be certain about anything, especially beliefs about God? And feelings are our only reliable guide to truth. As a result, there's just kind of this heavy layer of fog over a lot of things. And we see a lot of Christians deconstructing right now. One of my lecturers at Oxford said this, and it stuck with me. He said, we're all under the influence of books we've never read. So take the basic question of epistemology, right? Epistemology is the question, essentially, what can we know for sure? 200 years ago, you walk around, you ask people in the Enlightenment. You're like, hey, Ben Franklin, what can we know for sure, right? And they're going to more or less tell you, we can know a lot of things for sure. We can trust our senses to give us an accurate idea of the world. And in fact, if we just think about it hard enough, we can work our way not towards just truth in science and mathematics, but actually like morality, systems of government. This was the enlightenment. People really trusted their ability to reason their way towards things. In fact, America's founders were so convinced that they could know things for sure that they wrote in our Declaration of Independence that it's self-evident. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Everybody knows it. Everyone knows it. That all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. What would happen today if we asked that same question? Hey, what can we know for sure? I think the answer we're going to get is very, very little. Right? What, what is self-evident today? I don't really know. What's the meaning of life? Big picture. Uh, I don't really know. Is there an appropriate time to listen to Christmas music? I don't really know. Just kidding, I do know. It's after Thanksgiving. All you guys who, whatever, okay, we won't get into it. But I do know that. That is a self-evident truth, so there we go. You heard, you heard it in chapel. All right, but we're all good now. We're all on the same page. We don't think we can know anything for sure. What happened? We had authors and a whole history of Western philosophical thought telling us, you can't know anything for sure, basically. Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, Frederick Nietzsche, all of these guys are called existentialists. They attack the idea that there's one truth that's true for everybody. So if God is real, we have no way of knowing. If right and wrong are real, uh, then they're mostly just invented categories. And the end result is that if you and I want to know what's true, we have to basically look at our feelings. We're looking in here for what's true, not out there at evidence. And that cultural mood absolutely applies to Christians today. And I would argue it's tearing our faith apart. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is just give you practical tools to think through our culture of skepticism. And the first one is this, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. When I would go on a college campus in uh, Boston and elsewhere, I would encounter a lot of claims of epistemic skepticism, right? Claims that is like, hey, look, I just don't think we can know anything about God one way or another. And I would gently try to nudge people, not in like a gotcha kind of way, that never works, but just in a way to like engage in conversation. I would try to get them to doubt their doubts. So for example, someone would say, hey, listen, man, I appreciate what you're trying to do here. Like we'd be with the Christian group right on campus. We'd be trying to basically share the gospel, invite them to like a lunch or a talk. And a student would say, hey, I appreciate what you're doing, but I don't think we can know anything about God one way or another. 
And the question I would always want to ask is, how do you know that we can't know anything about God one way or another? How do you know? It seems like you're asserting that we can know for sure that we can't know anything about God one way or another. So my question is, how do you know that we can't know? Because if we can't know that we can't know, then maybe we do know. You got to doubt your doubts. P the truth is this, pure skepticism has its limits. You just can't doubt everything about everything. You can't do it. It's self-contradictory, right? Or someone would say this, maybe you've heard this one. People believe that their culture, um, sorry, people believe what they believe about God because their culture has conditioned them to believe it, right? So some, someone would say, hey man, like, I, I want to respect your beliefs, but just so you know, like, you're only a Christian because you grew up in a Christian country. If you grew up somewhere else, you'd believe something else. Your culture has conditioned you to believe what you believe. Therefore, I, it's just, it doesn't seem true to me. I, I can't opt in. What I would always want to say, again, gently is, is your culture conditioning you to hold that belief that you're currently espousing? Because if it is, why should I believe then that all culture always conditions all of us to believe what we believe about God? You guys tracking with this? Some of y'all just woke up in time for chapel, and I can tell that you got the toothpaste, but it's okay. This is heady philosophy. You didn't know you had like a philosophy class this early. But it's important, you guys, because here's what I, I want to land on this. You need to doubt your doubts. The problem with pure skepticism isn't just that it's self-contradictory. We can't possibly doubt everything. The problem with skepticism is that life requires action. And we have to make decisions on certain critical truths. Like if you and I get in my car and I'm like, hey man, you want to buckle your seatbelt? And you're like, you know, I appreciate what you're trying to do there. I just like don't have enough information, you know, one way or another about whether or not that's going to be safe or helpful. So I'm just going to not. You're not actually showing me that you don't know enough. You're actually making a decision based on what it is you think you already know about seatbelts. And that same truth applies to belief in God. The question is, if we can't know anything about the world, then why in the world would you opt for atheism on a blind leap over Christianity? If you choose atheism, the belief that there's no God, as a default, it's not a sign that you don't think you can know anything about the universe. It's a sign that you already think you do. And that just the evidence seems more likely to you that there is no God. Life requires action. Spiritual questions require action. Why does this matter? You guys, culture wants to tell you and me as Christians that unless we can know for sure everything about God, then we probably should give up being a Christian. Unless we have complete epistemic certainty. Like if you think that you actually know everything for sure, then by all means, be a Christian. But if even a little bit of doubt gets in there, you're probably best off opting for agnosticism or atheism. That's the cultural waters we're swimming in. But that's just not true. Just because we can't know everything doesn't mean we can't know anything. Just because I don't know everything about the physics of seatbelts doesn't mean I'm not going to opt for buckling my seatbelt when I get in the car. I know enough to make that decision at least. 
And I think that truth applies to God. We know enough about him to put our trust in him. And sometimes when that culture of doubt seeps in, we need to doubt our doubts. In fact, C.S. Lewis put it this way, if God is real, we should expect him to be at least as complicated as physics. Any physics or engineering majors or any STEM people in the room, raise your hand. Okay, we got some. Quantum physics right now is telling us a seemingly contradictory thing, right? When we boil it down to, and I'm not like a STEM person per se, but I do know when we boil it down to the quantum level, it seems like matter can be in two places at once. And it's blowing our minds. We can't reconcile that. But that doesn't mean we've thrown out the rest of physics along the way. The same physics that lets us put astronauts on the moon and build huge skyscrapers, right? We know enough about physics to trust in what we can know without throwing out the whole baby with the, with the bathwater, right? If God is real, we should expect him to be at least as complicated as physics. I don't know how the Trinity works. But I do know that this universe didn't create itself from nothing. And life requires action on that point. That's the more intellectual side of this question of doubt. We need to doubt our doubts. But the second thing I want to leave you with today is we should expect to doubt at some point in our lives. Uh, so when I was um, 21, 22, well, I was 22, I graduated from Taylor University. And, man, I was on top of the world. Taylor's a great place. I really had been blessed by my philosophy professors and my Christian education. And, in fact, I did get a really solid Christian education. Then I heard about this program overseas at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. I said, that sounds impossible. Let me just, let's just try, let me just try to get in. So a buddy of mine, we were talking about it. We're like, let's just, let's just send it. Hail Mary, see if we can get into this program. Long story short, someone made a huge error, and we were admitted into this program. And, but I was feeling like the man. I showed up in Oxford, I was like, you know in Spider-Man, where he's like walking down the street, and he's all like, yeah. I had that music playing in my head. I was like, mm, let's go. Here's something you may know about Oxford. It's filled with, apparently, smart um, people. I didn't know that. And not all those smart people agreed with me on everything. Again, blew my mind when I got there. I was big fish, small pond. Now I showed up and I was like not even a fish. I was a plankton. <laughs> and I'll never forget this. I went to like a wine and cheese mixer. Because uh, it's England, that's what they do. Go down, talking to a professor of theology at Oxford University. And he's like, oh, what are you here to study? And I'm like, I'm here with the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, you know, because <laughs> I'm awesome. <laughs> I don't know. And he's like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me, what do you think Jesus' central teaching was? When an Oxford professor asks you a question like that, he means exactly or she means exactly what they, what they say. He's, he didn't ask me what did Jesus come to do. Right, I know the answer to that. Die for our sins. That's easy. John 3.16. He asked me what was Jesus' central teaching throughout the New Testament. I had never been asked that question. So like the first question anyone asked me popped my little balloon of, I'm awesome. I was absolutely tongue-tied. I was like, I don't know. I have no idea. I went from thinking I know a lot 
to thinking, I know very, very little about this. I know almost nothing. I went from feeling, more importantly, I went from feeling like I knew a lot, almost everything, to feeling like I knew very little. And that experience of doubt is haunting. I don't know if you guys have ever been there, sat in that place, where you feel like, gosh, I, I don't know anything. Is this even true? I've built so much on, on this premise, and I've never actually critically examined it. In my mind, that started to trigger something that I now call meta-doubt. Meta-doubt. So you think about what's the meta of something. It's like a layer up, right? Meta-doubt. Meta-doubt is doubting because you're feeling doubt. And that was what I experienced. My inner monologue w went like this. Man, I'm, I'm Casey Leander. <laughs> if I'm feeling doubt, then this whole thing is probably untrue. Like if I'm feeling doubt, set aside the horrendous arrogance and blatant logical fallacy of that. Just go with me on that for a second. Meta-doubt. Meta-doubt is particularly poignant in a culture that bases all truth on how you feel. Because according to that premise, if something's true, then I will feel like it's true at all times. It will always be rich and fulfilling and yippee, an adventure. Hooray, I'm at Disneyland. And that's how I'll know something's true. Culture is not subtly telling you guys that message in every movie you ever watch right now. Basically, more or less. It's reinforced again and again and again. And it triggers doubt because we're doubting, because what we, we feel like suddenly we don't know as much as we thought we did. What that experience did for me, you guys, long story short, is drove me to the only place I really truly needed to go, back to Scripture. I'd kind of built a faith apparatus on feeling good, getting good grades at Taylor. And I needed to go to God's word. I had to drink from the well. And what I found is this. The Bible actually predicts and explains our feelings of doubt. The Bible is not naive about our capacity to doubt even true things, okay? You will discover this if you read it. The Bible is not a hall of fame for people who always hit home runs. It's filled with broken people who limp their way through life, and God rescues them and is kind to them again and again and again. One of the stories that stuck out to me is Peter. So Peter is one of Jesus' inner three. This guy saw King Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Olives, and Moses and Elijah are sitting there. Peter saw Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. He was in the boat when Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. And Jesus towards the end of his earthly ministry, starts to say things like, hey, the Son of Man is going up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be betrayed. And Peter, in his zeal, is just like, Lord, no. Like, no way. That's never going to happen. And even if all these others betray you, I will never betray you. I will follow you to the death. But then what happens to Peter? He denies three times that he even knows Jesus. 
it's not just Peter. This same story of doubt happens again and again and again. One of my other favorites is John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. This dude is literally willing to take a bullet for Jesus. He sees heaven open up and a dove descend and God's audible voice say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. But when John the Baptist is in prison, he sends messengers to Jesus saying, are you the one we're waiting for or is there another? It's like John hits this low moment where he's thrown into prison and loses everything and suddenly John the Baptist is feeling like maybe he didn't know as much as he thought he knew when he was eating locusts and baptizing people in the wilderness. Scripture predicts and explains our feelings of doubt. I want you guys to hold on to that. And it shows us a couple of things. It showed me a couple of things in that season. First of all, people will doubt things that they should absolutely know for absolute sure are true. Why? Not because the things aren't true, but because we're people. We are broken. We are tossed about by the waves. But scripture also showed me that God is gentle and he's kind with us in that process. Jesus doesn't cast Peter out. He cooks him breakfast on the beach. Jesus doesn't send the messengers back to John and be like, John, what the heck? You're my cousin, bro. What are you doing? He's like, go tell John what you've seen. The blind can see. The lame can walk. And the kingdom is proclaimed. He gives John actually evidence. What that means for you and me is that we can safely do away with the experience of meta-doubt. You should never doubt Christianity because you're doubting Christianity. But the last thing I think we need to let doubt do for us is help us ask our way to better answers. Ask our way to better answers. In that story of Peter, I think the Lord gave me this nugget. It's like, Peter's like, Lord, even if everyone betrays you, I'm rock solid. I, I got you. I'm going to the end with you. Is that a statement of faith in Jesus or Peter? It's a statement of faith in Peter. And I realized my faith was shaky. It was built on a really weak foundation. It was built on a foundation of Casey being awesome. And Casey's not that awesome. If my faith is in myself, I'm going to be devastated if one feeling of doubt creeps in. If feelings are the ultimate standard of what's true, I'll be blown around by every wind of teaching. But if my faith is in God, I should expect to doubt at some point because I'm a broken person who's fully capable of doubting even good, beautiful, and true things. C.S. Lewis put it this way, Now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But then again, when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. That's why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. Honestly, I wish I could use the word dither like that. 
If your faith is built on something shaky, I want to challenge you to go find the real thing. Ask your way to better answers. And that answers, in my mind, the critical question of doubt, which is, if God is real, why would he let even faithful Christians who say they love him, why would he let us feel this? Why? Like, if he's real, he could send a unicorn and write my name in the sky right now. You know what I mean? I sometimes pray for that, not going to lie. So why? But why, why doesn't he do that? Why would he let us feel this tumult in our hearts? I think the best kept secret of doubt is this. If the God who made us to know him really loves us, then the best thing he can do is let us hit rock bottom on our fake answers about himself. He can force our sandcastle to fall down so that we dive deep. We go for the roots. We build our house on something solid. And I'll close with this. We live in a Christian culture that I think it's safe to say is in crisis. The number of Christians are dwindling. You'll see this reported in the news a lot. Global Christianity might be on the rise. Western Christianity is struggling. We're feeling it. We're feeling the loss in our cultural institutions. We feel outnumbered and outgunned when it comes to issues of sexuality and ethics. We feel nervous and afraid. I wonder if God is sifting our bad answers about himself through a sieve so that we are forced to go back to the root and the wellspring of life. If you are feeling dry in your faith, don't wait another minute. Go to scripture. Read the word. You can do it. And here's the thing, covenant. God loves us anyway. I'm going to pray for us and we'll close. Lord, I just lift up your bride. God, we are thrown around by the wind right now. And it hurts. It breaks my heart to see it. As things fall apart sometimes in our culture, people we thought we could trust betray us. You know what's going on, Father. You know what's going on in the lives of these students. And I pray that in your mercy, you would inspire all of us through the power of the Holy Spirit to ask our way to better answers, to reach for the firm foundation. 